This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. and this is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. This is episode 20 of the podcast, and it brings season one to a close. Over the course of the past 19 episodes, I've revisited 23 of my favourite Irish albums, and this episode revisits one of my all-time favourites. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all 24 albums. And I'd ask that if you've enjoyed any episode to date, then please consider subscribing, liking and sharing. I also want to thank everyone who's listened to an episode and special thanks to all the artists that have shared their time and stories with me. With that said, the work of Carl Coughlin has loomed large over this podcast. He joined me for two episodes. Episode three focused on the great Fatima Mansions album Viva Dead Ponies and episode 11 revisited his second solo album The Majestic Black River Falls. A few months ago, Micro Disney's Virgin albums, Crooked Mile and 39 Minutes, were finally released on streaming services, and we had talked about doing an episode focusing on those records, but it wasn't to be. Cahill sadly passed away on the 18th of May after a long illness. The news was shocking. In a piece I did for the Sunday Independent following Cahill's passing, I wrote that I had discovered Micro Disney at 14, when in 1987 I saw their video for Town to Town on television. My mother walked through the living room and told me that Cahill Coughlin, the singer, was from over the road. On hearing Cahill's name, my grandfather looked up from his newspaper and said, that's Eleanor's young fella, didn't I teach him in school? Smiling, he then went back to his paper and said, well, you didn't really teach Cahill. I was hooked, a local hero. It's been a long journey staying the course with him, and for many others, it's been longer. I met Cahill for the first time in 1991, when the Fatima Mansions played a gig in De Lacey House in Cork. I sneaked into the venue early to watch them soundcheck. He could have told me to feck off, but instead he was really friendly, funny and kind. It was one of the greatest gigs I've ever seen. I spoke to him countless times for various articles, radio programmes, podcasts and documentaries. He was intelligent, he was intense, he was highly opinionated. I steadfastly, though, remained that teenager in awe. And that's a sentiment also expressed to me by Jackknife Lee, which I'll get to presently. In 2017, I produced a documentary about Micro Disney, which I'm returning to for this episode. It was the third part of a court trilogy after documentaries about Five Go Down to the Sea and Stump. In late 2017, Micro Disney announced that they would reform to play concerts in the National Concert Hall in Dublin and London's Barbican Centre. I attended the Barbican concert and I was honoured to be on the guest list. Sitting next to me was Rough Trade's Jeff Travis. We had a great chat before the gig about Micro Disney and I can remember him saying that he wouldn't come to see any old reformed Rough Trade band but that he had to make an exception for Cahill and Micro Disney. There I was waiting to finally see one of my all-time favourite bands and sitting next to me is the guy who influenced so much of my own record collection. 
I was pinching myself. Afterwards, Cahill smiled and said, you made it. What a night. Later, I was informed that my documentary had been one of the catalysts for the Reformation. I couldn't believe it. I was just so proud. We thought that was it. But in 2019, we got Vicker Street and then Cahill and Sean returned to where it all began for a final triumphant concert in Cork. That night, he bowed and left the stage. It looked as if he was overcome by emotion. Is it simplistic now to think that maybe he knew what we didn't? The morning after the gig, I had to meet Sean to talk about a Michael O'Shea documentary I was producing. And as I walked into the hotel restaurant, Cahill came over and asked, well, what did you think of the gig? What did I think of the gig? It was all right, I said, and the two of us laughed. Last year, Cahill released Song of Coaclan, and this year as Telefiche with Jackknife Lee, he released A Hain, two of the greatest albums of a long and distinguished career. In episode 11 of the podcast, Cahill told me that a second Telefiche album had just been finished a few days earlier. In a correspondence with Jackknife Lee, he confirmed to me that, yes, a dough is finished. We finished it a few weeks ago. It's an extension of a hen. We thought about it as the next phase, black and white to colour, a second channel, RTE2, to the first national broadcasting channel, RTE1. And what would the remit for Telefisha Do be? Well, Jackknife continues. As the concept moved to colour, we also moved forward from the culture of a Lamas Ireland to a Hawhi Ireland, but prismed through our relationship with it. Not how we reacted at the time, but retrospectively, how we feel we reacted. If a hen was our childhood, a doe could be our teenage years, our entry to music making in an era of the show band, our feelings towards entertainment versus art, money and culture. The sound is broader too. Jackknife went on to tell me how Dave Clifford from Vox magazine put his first band Casablanca Moon on a few bills with the two-piece Micro Disney. He says, Dave also gave me demos of theirs and I became a huge fan. Those and the Kabuki singles we played on a daily basis and it shaped my writing for a while. Cahill and I weren't that close but hung out. I was 14, he was probably 20 or so. They let me stay at their rehearsal space in Cork. Jackknife continues, After they moved to London, we lost touch but I always followed Cahill and Sean's path through music. A big part of me is still that 14-year-old fan when it comes to Cahill. I still hold him with the same regard and awe as I did then, and it's justified. Up to the end, Cahill was at a creative peak, but really, he was never not brilliant. You can randomly pick any piece of work from any point in his career and see there's something unique and brilliant happening. You don't get to be that good without physically writing or internally processing and organising your perspective in words every day. He continues, There are some songs on the new album that feel like a lifetime of distillation and patience rather than an afternoon of wrangling a verse into shape. He was always working on it. Some people may have taken their eyes off him for a while, but he'd not stopped. I said this when Cahill was alive, that I was blessed to be alive at the same time as him. To have all that music soundtrack my life was a gift. I was intimidated when we started to work together a few years ago, as we come at music very differently. We became close. He was hilarious, compassionate, warm and effusive. He was easy to love, 
so I felt lucky to be with him. I tried to impress him as he made me a better person and a better artist. I didn't stop being a fan as we worked on Telefiche. Now, I want to thank Jackknife for those very kind words about his relationship with Cahill. It just remains for me to say, rest in peace, Cahill. So here we go to Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, Episode 20, The Clock Comes Down the Stairs by Micro Disney. It's my great pleasure to present Iron Fist in Velvet Glove, The Story of Micro Disney. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. Micro Disney, contrariness, spikiness, being unafraid. I found him a very inspiring person because he just had a, a moral gravity. If James Joyce had a discovered punk rock, that's Carl Cochran. Sounds like Merle Haggard on acid. I don't... <laughs> Lyrically biting, but melodically really sweet. We were just so happy to be doing something that we wanted to do and thinking that we were making a difference we just absolutely completely were convinced that what we were doing was going to be out there in the world and people were going to hear it and people were going to react to it we had this kind of total belief in what we were doing unbelievable needed a deposit for flat and I got an agreement from Cherry Red on the phone in a pay phone so you're going to do it yeah okay so we'll give you a hundred pound up front fine okay I'm coming for it now <laughs> right and he said what what I didn't have a bus fare I had no money right but we needed a deposit for a flat and I was in Kendra Rise and I ran from Kendra Rise to Kensington Gardens I remember there was torrential rain and I ran through the torrential rain. I ran because I had no money because I needed to get there in time to get the cheque to get it into the bank. And I ran in and there was just like shock at Cherry Red. And I said, well, you said you'd do it. And they said, yeah, they said, well, I need the money now for the deposit. And they were just in shock. And then it, so they just wrote me a cheque. And I got it into the bank and we got the deposit and we got flat. You know, it's so funny now when I think of how that complete, an utter naivety and ignorance just completely makes something happen. Micro Disney were formed in Cork in 1980 by Carl Coughlin and Sean O'Hagan. By 83, the band had emigrated to London. Four albums later, and the band split up in 1988. One of those albums, 1985's The Clock Comes Down the Stairs, regularly appears at the top of the best Irish album of all time lists. Micro Disney fused beautiful melodic music with literate, often sardonic and caustic words. Firm favourites of the BBC's John Peel, he once described them as Iron Fist in Velvet Glove. So this is Iron Fist in Velvet Glove, the story of Micro Disney. Stay. 
name is Gareth Ryan. I started a label in 1982 called Kabuki Records, which released the first two Micro Disney singles, which were Hello Rascals and Pink Skin Man. At the time, I was working for Rough Trade Distribution. I think it would be early 83, Kabuki released three things at the same time. There was the first Five Get Out of the Sea single. There was the fantastic Pink Skinned Man by Micro Disney and Roof Rex's Capital Letters. After about a week, Peel hadn't played anything. But we were there on a Tuesday night. Peel's theme music, Picking the Blues, started. And normally he would read out a selection of what was coming up on the show over that theme tune. He said, tonight we got records from Micro Disney. Kabuki Records, the new single from Micro Disney, who come from Cork. Five Go Down to the Sea. Called Five Go Down to the Sea. But to start tonight's show off, Roof Rex. Roof Rex, this is on Kabuki Records, which is an Irish label based in London. But at that point, we just went completely crazy in the flat, started smashing things up, because it was more than we could possibly have hoped for in one go. The sort of excitement that he brought to it, you know, it was almost like suggesting that there was a little mini ripple of cultural excitement going on here. True to form, he then played Pigskin Man a great number of times. Play quite a bit, that helicopter of the Holy Ghost. This is a new one from them on Kabuki Records as before. Pink Skinned Man. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm up to the middle of 1983 and we haven't heard from Cahill yet. I suppose the best place to start is to simply put John Peel's analogy to him. Well, I can understand why people think it's an iron fist and a velvet glove, but it does suggest an element of agency that wasn't really at work. It was an expression of personality, certainly, but it wasn't premeditated. And I think it was more the case of trying to find a convincing way of putting across something that was quite conflicted. Yeah, it was more of that, actually. But obviously, people hear what they hear. Well, Carl did say that people hear what they hear. So I'm sticking with Iron Fist in Velvet Glove. It's back to Cahill. Can you introduce yourself as part of this? Yeah, sure. Because I'll tell you why. Half the people I've interviewed, even people in your own band, can't pronounce your name. Well, it's, it is a bit of an ask, you know. I mean, it's written in a language where, as you know, but I'm going to say it out loud anyway, a variety of consonants are not present in the transliterated alphabet and hence they have to be aggregated to form what seem like quite simple sounds. I have become quite even-minded about the whole project of having this name. Uh, I'm Cahal Coughlin, I was the singer and the co-founder of Micro Disney. Okay, so let's go back to the start of our story. In the mid-70s, a teenage Sean O'Hagan arrives in Cork with his parents from Luton. A few years later, at a party, he strikes up a conversation with a guy. They end up chatting about music. Scritti Politti and the pop group are discussed. It all started for me when I met Carl at a party. I think it was 79.80, New Year's Eve party. Carl was at college and I was just working in Little Island, just doing a day job. I was something like 21, maybe Carl was 19 or something like that. We decided to sort of get together and just do this kind of poetry thing, you know, poetry with guitars. So that's where I met Mick, Mick Lynch. The band that Cahill, Sean and Mick formed in early 1980 also had Jack Walsh on bass and Dave Galvin on drums. Mick Lynch, who would eventually go on to be the lead singer in Stump, recalls the couple of months when himself and Cahill co-fronted 
constant reminders. So Cahal Shaw myself got a band together called Constant Reminders. Shock or horrible fucking name. It was kind of strange, really, because it was Cahal and myself. We were both on vocals, so it was like having two front men. We played four or five, maybe six gigs. The first one was out in UCC. Last one was in Henry's. We played a, a Sunday early. And, of course, we're on the free drink. We went down so well that Jimmy said, like, play again three hours later. Like, of course, straight on the snake bites. Fucked. Like, anyway, I was so drunk I couldn't sing. Brand split up. They went on to farm Micro Disney. Carl and Sean regroup quickly. Gerdi O'Leary leaves Non-Attacks to join the fledgling Micro Disney on second guitar. There was a bass player called Chris McCarty. Uh, a drummer called Dave Galvin, um, Sean Cahill and myself. I mean, everybody was young, so it was all very youthful energy and stuff like that. Micro Disney were a bit more together. Certainly, they were more um, focused, like about trying to organise and make the next steps, how to negotiate a, a career. You know, Dave Galvin describes the band's sound. In large measure, there was a sort of a funk feel to it. Carl was very individual in his lyrics. You had Sean playing a very sort of a funky, rhythmic guitar. He loved, he loved that sound, and he was absolutely brilliant at doing it. Uh, you had Gary then, who more or less had carte blanche to do anything he wanted to over that, which gave it a kind of a very unusual sound. And then it was myself and Chris Hammer just kind of keeping it simple enough. Things happened very quickly. I mean, suddenly we found ourselves playing with some fairly well-known bands. And uh, like in a very short period, I mean, literally within three or four months. Those support slots were thanks to Elvira Butler. Elvira ran the downtown campus at the Cork Arcadia and gave Micro Disney their earliest gigs. Elvira also released the Caught at the Campus live EP, which captured the band's first gig. I sat down with Elvira and we looked through a timeline of Arcadia gigs. I was probably very impressed with Micro Disney when I saw them play. The Cut of the Campus was recorded on the 30th of August. And we had over a thousand in for Cut of the Campus. I had them back some weeks later. I know they played support to the 4v2. So, so playing support like to an English band would have been kind of a big step up from like even supporting kind of maybe a Dublin band. Um, so that was a big jump up and like that was like to an audience of nearly a thousand. And then I had them back again. I had them in supporting the fall. But that stage they had actually really toured an awful lot. I remember like Marky Smith kind of standing beside Marky Smith watching the band and Marky saying he'd love to pinch the band <laughs> as his backing band, get rid of Cal. <laughs> I remember like Cal's passion as well. They came across as kind of more intellectual in that at, at the campus. They stood out in that way. They almost came across as serious about what they were doing. They had aspirations. On the 17th of October 1980, Stan Arocht, who would later go on to form the Stars of Heaven, travelled down to Cork to see the fall. It was October 1980, I can remember it fairly precisely. The fall were playing in the Ark in Cork and they weren't playing a Dublin gig. Quite a few of us who were big fall fans basically got the train down to Cork and to go and see them. Michael Disney were supporting the fall that night. It was the first time I'd seen them. I'd heard about them before, so I was looking forward to seeing them and they just blew me away. They were way ahead of what any Dublin band was doing at the time. And just Carl's presence was, was as developed then as it is now. Gareth Ryan, who would eventually release the first two Micro Disney 7-inch singles, was also at the fall in the Ark. We used to go along religiously then to, uh, probably the wrong choice of words there, religiously, in Carl's case. We would take the, the train down to the Ark and I think Micro Disney supported the fall. There were a couple of other trips down. 
obviously you had Sean's funky guitar, a lot of real attitude from Cahill, but at the same time it was all very literate stuff. It would have been very difficult to pinpoint anything that it sounded like that five piece, you know, it was, it was really good stuff. There were gigs with Susie and the Banshees in Dublin, the Undertones in Galway, the Beat and the Specials in the Arcadia. Gigs with U2 in both the Ark and in Dublin. Elvira recalls some of these early gigs. Okay, the four was October, Tony Cockney was November. And then, of course, in December, they supported you too. That's nearly 1,500 people. That's a huge gig for Micro Disney to get, isn't it? Typically, like, we were probably averaging 1,000 people. But by that stage, I had asked Paul McGuinness as well if they could support you uh, too in, I think it's a TV club you two were playing. It was kind of, you know, purposeful on my part that, like, the local bands, if they could, if they could hold the stage at all, got exposure like that because I was more interested in them than I was the kind of the other bands that were coming. Gurdy remembers the carry-on. A way of looking at things, you know. It's there, it's a sort of a sense of humour. Sometimes it's blatantly obvious, like with Cahill. Sometimes it's more subtle, like... Cahill did some outrageous things, like... Outrageous. U2 boy wanks at confession. He was chanting when we supported U2 in the uh, television club. He got on his knees, people throwing bottles at him, huge crowd to see U2. We were a support band, they hated us, and Carl finished the night off with U2 by wanks at confession, wanks at confession, you know, making the sign of the cross on his knees. In Michael Disney, we had a song called Come Back and Flammy, like he did last year. <laughs> we played the Magnet, and it was our encore song, it was a country and western song. I, I always remember, like, there'd be loads of people from Dublin all singing, like, come back and flammy, flammy, like you did last year or like you did last night or something. <laughs> and I was naive, and I thought, like, everybody in the world said flab. I didn't know that in Cork there was a sort of a unique way of speaking, you know. Or did the woman from the Irish Tackler who tried to interview... Uh, <laughs> Cahill and Sean and Chris and they insisted on talking about fishing all the time, you know, everything was fishing and she left without an interview that kind of carry on and it's plenty of that plenty of that crack On Valentine's night 1981, a fire in the Stardust nightclub in Artane in Dublin claimed the lives of 48 young people, insurance premiums soared Bobby Sands refused food on the 1st of March that year, starting the second H-block hunger strike. And as a result of the ensuing troubles, many touring UK bands stopped coming to Ireland. These unrelated factors eventually led to the closure of the Arcadia at the end of May 1981. Cahill remembers that without a venue, the scene in Cork dissipated. And by early 1982, the original Micro Disney was gone. Sean and Cahill were determined to keep going. Well, we were starting off again anyway, and it was just the case that the original number of people couldn't really stay focused together because the place was falling apart, and people's lives were moving on as well, of course. But when the Arcadia closed, really, the opportunity to just be put in front of large numbers of people had kind of disappeared for the foreseeable future. I think the slimming down to two was more a consequence of the the disappearance of the platform for playing regularly than any kind of taking the bit between our teeth because that was going to have to... That was just a reality that we faced, really, anyway. The stripped-down two-piece were trying something different. They were starting again. They had a new set of songs. 
Sean explains what influenced this new direction. I really remember being so excited. Played to small crowds of curious people. I didn't really quite get the fact that there wasn't a noise, that there wasn't any stomping going on. And there were these strange tunes that were kind of influenced by all the things that Carl and I were stumbling over. Some contemporary stuff which we loved, things like Billy McKenzie and the Associates, lots and lots of Scott Walker, getting accustomed to Graham Parsons. In Dublin, there was a group of people, and that group of people were very studious, especially Stan Irott and Stephen Ryan. The Stars of Heaven. The Stars of Heaven, yeah, yeah. And then Bill Graham. Very, very important, Bill Graham. When he first saw us, he just gave us fistfuls of records. Okay, you guys need to listen to this. That's where the kind of flow of information of music definitely came from. As writers, as the two-piece, we were listening to Scott Walker, we were listening to John Barry, Eric Sarty, we were also listening to Suicide, and lots of Suicide. We were massively obsessed with Suicide. We were listening to ambient music, we were listening to bits of John Cage and The Residents, Beefheart, things like that very very important to us and obviously Carl and I were both kind of probably the only two people we knew in the world who were obsessed with the Beach Boys and back then nobody was obsessed with the Beach Boys nobody it was just kind of a slightly embarrassing thing Carl was really the one who drove Pet Sounds to me this new ambition this new writing ambition that we both shared and we were isolated, we were trying to ferment that in this little flat every day in Dawn Square. And when we got to actually play this stuff to confused, curious audiences, we didn't mind, we were just, I remember just being joyful. Two confused members of one of those earliest audiences were Mark Healy and Jim O'Mahony. Mark and Jim would eventually play in the Cork band Cypress Mine and the Balsonic Sound. Here they recall a gig at the Metropole Hotel gig that I saw them play. There might have been maybe a hundred people if there was even that. Tiny little room, very sweaty. <laughs> and then the crowd that were at that particular gig, you know, people didn't know what they were going to expect because they hadn't seen them since they played in the arc with Gurdy and the rest of them. And then all of a sudden it was just down to a two-piece. So there was still a lot of anger and shouting and stuff from Cahill, but it was a completely different experience when I saw them as a five-piece. There was a wedding on in the same night. The room that the wedding was booked in was next door to the room where Michael Disney was. So, I mean, you had all these people in suits and bridesmaids' dresses walking in to see Michael Disney. The wedding was subjected to all these freaks. It was a mad night. I can remember um, Sean walked around to everyone after they'd played, asking them, did they enjoy it? I was there kind of thinking, Jesus, does this happen after every band has played? Carl kept pretty much to himself. Carl could be fairly angry. There was a lot of foot stamping, occasional shouting and roaring and stuff like that, but always in a good way. When it was only the two of them, it was Carl keyboards, the drum machine, and then Sean used to play that Gibson SG, uh, and that was it. As a two-piece, I thought they were amazing. I think Michael Disney always saw a future for themselves. They were very into what they were doing themselves. They always kept their hand in Dublin. I remember seeing Michael Disney in Dublin in 1982, and they ran the place. You know, they were kind of held with respect. And I think they saw that they had to move. Cahill didn't like Cork anyway. You know, I don't think Cahill liked Ireland. I don't think he liked anywhere at the time. If you'd send him to Tahiti, he probably wouldn't have liked that either. But I think they had to move. Jim O'Mahony there and Mark Healy before him, remembering an early micro-Disney gig at the Metropole Hotel in Cork. One of Mark Healy's bandmates in Cypress Mine was Kieran Otuma. As a teenager, Kieran photographed many of the bands in the Ark and shot a lot of pictures for Cahill and Sean. 
Here he recalls working on one of Micro Disney's last Cork gigs. Pink Skin Man, he starts off with Autumn Comes In Here, hedges heaving huge at the sight of driving rain. I think that's just fantastic, you know. Dear lover, you're no good. The next line, almost emotional thinking about it. Dear lover, you're no good. Dear lover, you've no right. You're sincerely someone else. So fucking good. So I've got loads of photographs to illustrate that. He realised, and Sean realised, we have to do something different here. Will our sound be good enough? They were moving on from punk. There was a more arty kind of thing just coming in. So this was the interesting thing. I spent weeks working with them on this. <laughs> and we went to the Triscoll Arts and they played an art venue. Micro Disney came on. I had it all set up. Two screens on either side of the stage. I had remotes to go with the music, synchronised, etc. They started off within two songs. The crowd started dancing, started going fucking apeshit. They started moving the screens around. It became fleeting chaos. I can say it was a disaster from my point of view, but the crowd loved it. Colin and Sean loved it because they had a great reaction, but I didn't see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is possibly the start of their next stage. Great new songs, a great new vision for the band. Don Square was the beginning of that realization. So how do you get from Don't Square to elsewhere? Well, first of all, you have to get out of Cork. We wanted to make an album. Getting out of Ireland seemed to be the only option, and moving to Dublin as a kind of a halfway house seemed a little bit... Well, why? What would that actually achieve? Even though Dublin was the place that we were always able to get some sort of audience, and where we met people who were decisive in our favour enabling us to do anything that we ever achieved, really. Two of those people in Dublin who helped Micro Disney move to the next level were Dave Clifford and Gareth Ryan. Dave Clifford published Vox magazine. Over the course of 15 issues, Vox shone a light on a whole post-punk subculture of alternative music, literature, performance and art. Gareth Ryan remembers Dave's enthusiasm. Dave Clifford from Vox magazine. Dave, absolutely infectious enthusiasm, as well as being quite experienced in the sort of art world at the time. You know, I always found him terrifically supportive and full of the ideas of what might be possible. Sean also remembers Dave's influence on himself and Cahill. The other driving force was Dave in Dublin because what he did was he helped him contextualise that. So we started to perform at the Project Arts Centre. We started playing with people like Michael O'Shea, Roger Doyle, those guys. And so there was a real shift. Gareth Ryan, who by now is living in London and working for Rough Trade Distribution, releases Micro Disney's first two singles on Kabuki. The BBC's John Peel starts playing them. Sean O'Hagan and Cattle Coughlin, and that's uh, Micro Disney. Dave Clifford introduces Sean and Cottle to Mike Alway from Cherry Red Records. Alway is about to start a new label with Rough Trade's Jeff Travis, called Blanco y Negro. He pays for studio time. 
John Peel loves the two Kabuki singles and the BBC offer the lads a radio session. Cahill recalls, in mid-July 1983, getting the ferry to England with Sean, accompanied by Five Good Onto the Seas, Ricky Deneen. It's time to up sticks and go. So we all ended up in London within about six months of each other. Me and Sean went first. Ricky acted as our porter for our equipment. We got the... I think it was still the Innes Fallon at that stage from Ring of Skiddy. It was horrible. Ricky and Sean got really drunk on the boat on the way over. For some reason, I stayed sober. I mean, why? I have no idea, because that wasn't really my bent at that point. But I ended up having to nursemaid these two, who were, like, violently hung over on the train. i never forget it. We had to get the, the local train to the main line. We were in this thing, which was like a tin can, this train. You know, blazing heat wave. It was hell. I mean, you know, that's the only way to describe it. We ended up in Paddington Station, like in the middle of July, this was, 1983, seeking fame and fortune. In July 1983, the UK experienced an unrelenting heat wave. It was the hottest month since records began. Our intrepid songwriters arrived in London with temperatures soaring to over 30 degrees. They not only wanted fame and fortune, they thought they deserved it. We arrived in London with a strong sense of entitlement. But above all else, I think, what we had was a real sense of, right, let's get the job done. They've said this is going to happen. It's going to happen. Once we had a place to live where we could make noise, we embarked on a fairly intense period of about a month of... We essentially rewrote all the songs we had. In some cases, like, radically from the ground up, I mean, different time signature, everything. Mike Alway, Blanco y Negro plan doesn't work out, and Mike or Disney end up on rough trade. Sean picks up the story. Well, we've done many demos, but yeah. Mike Alway, in the end, he can't actually sign us, and it's, I don't know how or why. He's very apologetic, but Jeff, who started Blanco Negro... But Jeff realises that we were here and we have a fistful of songs and, and he basically says it'll happen on Rough Trade and so we're on Rough Trades. Jeff Travis of Rough Trade remembers this period. They were fantastic. I mean, they were so singular, you know. And Cockle, obviously, is just such a great character. You know, they're one of those great conglomerates of people that are so unlikely that they're just marvellous. Cockle's a great writer. I mean, that's all absolutely there in the great tradition of Irish wordplay, usage of language, fantastic. And obviously, you know, Sean has proven himself to be a quite remarkable arranger. There's no rhyme or reason in those days, Paul. The thing that you have to know is that everything that ever came out on Rough Trade is something that I absolutely loved, otherwise it wouldn't have come out, because that's the criterion. So I held them in very, very high regard. The band's first Peel session was recorded on the 8th of August, 1983. It would be the first of six that Micro Disney would record for Peel's programme. Here's Cahill. It had an inestimable effect. It changed my life. I mean, you know, nothing would have happened for us if it wasn't for the fact that he played Pink Skin Man and Helicopter of the Holy Ghost and gave us those sessions. People in Leeds would know your material that hadn't been on a record yet and they just knew who you were and they would come and see you at the warehouse of the uni or whatever, you know? According to Sean, the band rehearsed diligently and then went into the studio for a week to record the first album. I loved it. I remember the smell of coffee. First time I smelled real coffee in my life. Thinking, wow, oh, that's what real coffee smells like. And there was a video player and I used to watch Midnight Cowboy every single day for some reason. 
we must have worked very, very hard, but we worked very systematically. You know, rough backing tracks and then the drum machine was being programmed. Carl was running all the vocals, double tracking his own voice for the first time. He was very relaxed about playing the piano, even though he'll probably think not. I think he was. So we make this record, which kind of, it sounds unlike any other record. the album was finished, a distributor strike delayed its release for months. Cahill describes the frustration. And of course then we hand the thing in and nothing happens for a long, long time. Six months or more. It's more like nine. We counted the days, you know. So what are you doing in the meantime? Are you just trying to survive? A certain amount of menial labour, quite a lot of sloth, frustration, long walks, drink, acid, speed... Richard Boone, it could be argued, kicked off the independent music scene in 1977 with the release of Spiral Scratch by the Buzzcocks. By 1983, he was the production manager at Rough Trade. He recalls meeting Cahill and Sean. First time I met Sean and Cahill, Rough Trade Records was expressing an interest in their work, but nothing had been confirmed at the time. So part of the summer of '83 as they were two unemployed Irish navvies in London. Whenever records needed stickers applied to them, they'd come in and do piecework. That's right, yeah, re-sleeving Smith's records when they, they couldn't get the right to use Terence Stamp's picture on the cover of What Difference Does It Make? Yeah, yeah, Richard, um, Richard saw us all right on, <laughs> on that, that elite activity. In May 1984, Micro Disney's debut album, Everybody is Fantastic, is finally released on Rough Trade. It reaches number six in the UK indie charts. Cahill admits that he really cared about how it was received in the music press, but lifestyle was beginning to be a problem. Profoundly, you would hear that some particular journalist had heard it and liked it, and you'd be sort of thinking, this is it, this is it, this is it. And of course it wasn't. Uh, There was a bit too much chemical stuff going on by this point, and... um, as in anything you can get your mitts on. I'm not talking anything posh. And the comedowns from chemicals and the sarcasm and the whole irony and the fact that the record came up but it didn't really do a whole lot all kind of combined into something rather destructive. And um, Alcohol was an antidepressant for all occasions, really, including the big picture of what the hell am I doing with my life, you know? Is this actually going to add up to anything? Am I just going to wind up in jail? It had its tentacles in all aspects. And by the mid-80s, you would have been mid-20s, I suppose. You've that whole thing of, what are you doing with yourself? Are you still at that? Well, I was not very honest as a person. The important thing to keep in mind about me is that I am essentially quite a low character. I found it easy to compartmentalise many aspects of my life. And so I wasn't particularly straight with anybody about what I was doing. There was rarely an occasion where anybody would say anything disparaging. To be honest, most of the disparaging things that people ever said to me about continuing to do it were much later on. They were like in the late 90s. Cahill and Sean were still a two-piece. A rhythm section was needed. 
Tom Fenner was a fan of the band since hearing them on Peel. He worked for ATV Publishing and tried unsuccessfully to sign Micro Disney. But he was also a drummer. We started playing and then I left the job, left the company car and signed on the dole and hey presto, we're off. Three Peel sessions in one year. I mean, you can retire at that stage then and they're happy really. No, it's fantastic. All I ever wanted to do, I love the stuff that they did. Richard Boone at Rough Trade introduced Cahill and Sean to a fellow Mancunian who played bass. John Fell remembers meeting the lads. They were really looking for somebody, I guess. So we went to the pub a couple of times and we got on. And what was also really interesting was that they were really big music fans. The stuff that they had been listening to, a lot of it was quite new to me, or it was stuff that I only knew kind of vaguely. And everything that Sean and Carl played me, I really loved. So I thought, OK, there's definitely um, got something in common. And there we are. There's the little four-piece. Carl's playing organ, I'm playing guitar, John and Tom. And we've recorded Everybody's Fantastic. The boys learned the songs. We're beginning to tour. We're touring the UK. We're going to Europe. We're going to Holland. We're going to Germany. We're drinking a lot, I think. No money. Drunk all the time. Mm. Holding it together for the gigs? Just about. Weird thing is we didn't realise that we were supposed to hold it together for the gigs. We kind of were so excited and we were so able to absorb so much booze without it over-affecting us. So we kind of... The difference between being plain sober and drunk is kind of like blurred. From Los Angeles, the games of the 23rd Olympiad continue. 17-year-old Zola Budd, just out of South Africa by way of England. In 1984, Zola Budd, a South African runner, was given British citizenship in order to circumvent the sporting boycott of South Africa during the apartheid era. This allowed her to compete in that summer's Olympic Games. The world's media was transfixed by her rivalry with the American runner Mary Decker. Meanwhile, the nightly news continued to show state violence in the black townships. Micro Disney were working on a compilation of singles and other songs. It seemed obvious to call what to call it. In October of that year, We Hate You South African Bastards was released. It did get more attention than it would have done, not just as on its own merits, really, and I kind of feel a bit bad about that. Mm. Profanity on, on a record cover was still a big deal at that point. It was an attempt at doing a kind of a flippant thing in the teeth of something. Oh, you know, we all know that this is a really serious thing, but we're going to make a joke about it. To be honest, with hindsight, that's a bit... That's a bit up itself, really, you know. Gareth Ryan, who was still at Rough Trade, remembers the record. What was remarkable was that when it was reviewed in the NME and when it appeared in the NME's indie chart, they appear to have unilaterally changed the title to We Hate You White South African Bastards. Nobody's ever explained that to me. It's possibly a unique scenario that the NME were so omnipresent at the time, felt that it was within their power to alter the titles of releases so that people wouldn't misunderstand. But the idea that the record-buying public, or the NME-buying public, can't cope and that somehow there would be uproar, and it's extraordinary. So your debut album hasn't set the world on fire and the title of your compilation has been misunderstood by some people. What do you do next? Well, obviously, if you're micro-Disney, you do a tour of communist Poland. So we've done these bizarre gigs with Liverpool University, some little pub here, some place on the south coast, and then suddenly, Poland. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. So we go to communist Poland and into bizarreness, long drives, the bleakness absolute bleakness of Poland 
telephones that don't work, hotels that could be from the 1940s, all this stuff. The government, the Russians are clamping down on, on solidarity. And we really come to a head in Gdansk where we meet these guys who are shaven-headed and grey-suited chaps who'd read about English musical austerity, Joy Division. 1984, there was this whole thing about austerity on music, you know? Celebration of Russian structuralism and brutalism and that. And then we're actually in it, you know? And the guys are saying, we want to be like the guys in Manchester. He goes, but no, the guys in Manchester want to be like you. And it's just like real confusion. Total confusion, really odd. But financially it was catastrophic and it cleaned us out. We had to continue from there to do some dates in Italy. That was the idea, that was the idea all along, was that we would go to Italy. Was it worth getting cleaned out for? I'm not certain, but was it a valuable experience? Yeah, absolutely, to go all through Poland, Czechoslovakia, as it then was, especially crossing the borders there into Austria and then on to Rome. It was a privilege to have witnessed that time. Painful time for many people, but important to know what it was like because, frankly, we may be heading back to something quite closely resembling it now. It's important to appreciate just how awful it was, you know, to say goodbye in the afternoon to one lot of Germans, affluent people who looked not that different to us, possibly slightly more affluent, that was all, and by evening to stop on a motorway services in another part of Germany and have people come up in these insane-looking clothes trying to change money with you, who are essentially coming out of 40 years of pauperisation, you know? This can happen, and it's important to know that it can happen. And as if almost on cue, as Cahill chats about the rise of the right in Europe... Is that rain? I doubt it. The clouds burst. Oh, wait a minute, it probably is. It's probably the tower. After coming back from Europe, the band started work on their next record. But in the UK of the mid-80s, being Irish wasn't always easy. There's a deep paranoia attached to it. And, you know, obviously the, the armed struggle was still in full swing and prone to, you know, bigger flare-ups from time to time. The full Thatcher paranoia was still in full effect. And it's, it was at its zenith. There was the minor strike and the print dispute the privatisations, the whole sense of confrontation. As an Irish person, you certainly felt that you were in a slightly dicey, as dicey position as you could be in, really, once you actually opened your mouth. But being an Irish exile in London was starting to inspire Cahill lyrically. Things were beginning to kind of fall together lyrically for me. Instead of just, like, churning out asides and stringing them together as, as strikingly as I could. I was thinking outside of that and actually coming to have some facility with it. The kind of personal aspect of being a, an exile was, was inspiring as well. It was painful. It was, it was painful, but it, it changed everything. There was, it brought a focus to everything, much more than the internal exile of, of what Cork became for me. The band met Jamie Lane through Tom Fenner. The producer agreed to work on the album. The clock is sort of essence of Micro Disney because the marriage between Sean's complex and beautiful arrangements and Cahill's biting lyrics and sort of incongruity between the two things is stark. They had a, 
a sort of intelligence that you don't often find in the music industry. <laughs> and that was very appealing. And also, Sean was a very wide-ranging musician, and it was a lot of fun because uh, the spirit was always very good, and it, it was a very positive experience. We are really organised, and we recorded Jamie. Great sessions, and we really are ambitious about getting this right. The backing vocal, you come in and you hear the playback, and you go, wow, let's do one more. Wow, let's add a harmony. Oh, my God. It was just brilliant everything and so it's just try something and then being pushed by jamie so no we can do it again we can break that down and make it and you know yeah maybe it's a good thing a bad thing to pursue perfection i don't know i have different opinions about that now but i really enjoy the, the whole process though really enjoying the whole recording experience reflecting now sean admits that for him the period of the clock was touched with a personal sadness my dad dies in 84 it's a pretty bad thing for me i'm on tour um, we're about to go on stage with supporting the um, Violent Femmes. And I'm sound checking and get a call. You need to come home. Your dad's dead. I was pretty cut up. And I remember at the end of making the clock, all my emotion for losing my dad comes out. I remember that very, very well. And so obviously, now when I think of it, it was so intense. I had to go back and then go back on tour, finish writing, recording. And then at the end of it all, I'm really sad. Oh, yeah, I lost my dad. That was interesting. That's how we did the clock on Zone of the Stairs and the dark clouds of being clueless and having not burned our bridges but strained people's patience quite a bit. The impact of that kind of was dissipated because we began showing results. Those results included a number one album. On the 1st of November 1985, the clock comes down the stairs, knocked Depeche Mode off the top place in the UK indie charts. Cahill describes it as almost a validation. We had managed to take this misshapen thing and not really alter its fundamentals very much and actually get to the point where it hung together. So it was validation in that sense. Being noticed was nice, but that kind of thing can easily go to a person's head and it, it kind of did in my case. Not in the predictable way of you know, expecting to have a penthouse in Regent Street in terms of not needing to deal with the aspects of myself that had been weighing things down, and which would continue to weigh things down to the present day. Uh, you know, so... Uh... I remember we went off to Europe to tour and then when we came back the papers were full and there was all this stuff. The critics were saying these guys are reinventing pop. It was like wow god even though we always knew it could work it was like oh god it is working Jesus it's working everything that we thought would work is happening. Clock Comes Down the Stairs was critically acclaimed, but the dire financial position that Micro Disney were in meant that a new record deal with a bigger company was needed. God, I mean, with hindsight, you know, I'd probably keep saying that, don't I? I've probably said with hindsight about 58 times in the last few minutes. Yeah. But 
It's crazy to let business dominate your creative life. It is the abettor of creativity, but it is not its root, and it can be its killer. However, there are times when it just kind of takes over your life because you make mistakes. And we had made a big mistake in not keeping books. And so there was this monstrous terror under the bed, which was beginning to develop actual form. Is that the inland revenue? Yeah, basically. We hadn't, uh, we hadn't ever done a tax return. It became plain we had to find some cash from somewhere because, to be honest, even though the clock was doing pretty well, it was only, as I recall it, it was only just about able to recoup all the money we had spent. It was only just about mopping that up, so some money needed to come from somewhere to deal with this, you know, to basically hire accountants and keep us sort of out of bankruptcy. Robert Forrester of the Go-Betweens remembers that both bands rehearsed in the same practice room space near Camden. They practiced next door to us. From what I can remember, we got to know them through the practice room. We'd hear them next door. I've never known a band that rehearsed so much. They'd rehearse meticulously for... I don't know if that was more Sean, I can't tell. But they were sort of very, very tight. The Go-Betweens were another rough trade band who had moved to a bigger label. Robert empathises with the position that micro-Disney found themselves in. We were both struggling and we were both doing good music, both bands. And we're in a way up against the music scene of that time. Both bands were essentially album bands, I thought, which might have worked more in the mid-70s. It might have worked more in the late 60s. It didn't work all that well in the mid-80s in London. There was a lot of money about and there was a lot of labels and there was a lot of we're going to make you a star type people around. You know, like if you use that producer, it's going to tend to be really good for your profile. You know, at the same time, bands like Microdisium and Goldtrins were struggling to survive. It was something of a deal with the devil. I don't know if they'd see it that way, but that's the way it was for us and the way I, I sort of perceived it to be with Micro Disney too. Ronnie Gurr was an A&R man working at Virgin Records. He'd been aware of Micro Disney since 1982 through the John Peel show. They always stood out for me. There was always Sean's underlying melodic sense as a counterpoint to Cahill's. Cahill was obviously, you know, hugely literate. His lyrics, I thought, were fantastic. So I think, you know, I kind of, you know, followed their development over a, you know, a period of time. Simon Draper is Richard Branson's second cousin. He ran Virgin Records on a day-to-day basis and ultimately signed off on signing new bands to the label. Ronnie picks up the story. Put yourself in my position. I have to go to Simon Draper because Simon Draper is actually South African. So you can imagine me having to take a band who had an album called We Hate You South African Bastards. So (laughs) that was an interesting meeting, placing Micro Disney albums on Simon Draper's desk. But to be fair, he obviously didn't hold that against them um, because he did ultimately sign off on signing them to Virgin. So Micro Disney signed to Virgin Records. They record Crooked Mile at Jam Studios in Tollington Park. But the great thing about Crooked Mile was working with Lenny Kay. Because Lenny Kay, to me, is one of the patron saints of popular music post-beat group. He was a mentor to me in ways that he didn't even know 
that weren't really even manifest on the record that we made, but that have served me in good stead ever since, you know? He was such a historian. We talk about music so much. Can we talk about all sorts of things? And everything was contextualised in a historical way. I was obsessed with Robbie Robertson at the time. Also obsessed with Alex Chilton. But Big Star was important to us right from the beginning because of Stoner Rock and Steve Ryan. Back to the stars of heaven. So, yeah, Big Star's really important. But sonically, Crooked Mile wasn't the record that Virgin wanted and there was this big, long silence after it and it didn't have the second single on it and I guess, I guess it didn't. I can't really listen to it even now, you know, not that I think it's a wasted opportunity, I just can't, I can't hear it through the web of all the stuff that happened around it and all the the time it took to, um, to be made, even. Crooked Mile is released in January 1987. Though well received by the music critics of the day, Sean explains that sonically it could have been very different. You know Crooked Mile feels like a kind of a rock and roll record in a mm-hmm. way. The demos, you know what we were listening to? Bobby Womack. Bobby Womack. Virgin weren't... No, 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 no. You're, you're white boys. It, it's rock and roll. Crooked Mile is preceded by Town to Town. This song is called Town to Town as well, which is going to want to kill people. The single is released in multiple formats and promoted with a glossy video. Micro Disney are now playing in the big league. Weirdly, I mean, it's not a hit, but mm. it's a kind of it's a massive radio hit. It's A-listed on Radio 1, and it was a mm-hmm. big thing. Every year they would go out on the road, and every day they'd say, and today we are in whatever, and it was town to town. And they used it 15 times a day. Radio 1, road trip, down, 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 and it was town to town. remember Mickey Most. Now Mickey Most is like pop, a pop guru. guru. I remember Mickey Most coming up to me when we were doing the next record saying, Town to Town, that was one of the greatest pop singles of the last 15 years. And how it wasn't mega, I don't know. And he had it in his hand. He, he said it was amazing. I said, I, lo- I love this. I love pop music. I love collecting it. Please sign this. You know, I'm just thinking, wow. That's Mickey Most. That's Mickey Most. Singer's Hampstead Home is the next release. A single of the week in The NME, the song was analysed by Manny to be a not-so-subtle commentary on the biggest pop star on the Virgin Records roster. Ronnie Gurr remembers. They weren't culture club. Singer's Hampstead Home would tell you that. You know, singer gets successful, makes a lot of money, and it's a fair comment on a pop star's life. You know, and you think, well, I know where that's inspired from, yeah. There was periods where Carl would have been in the office and George inevitably would have been in the office because he was never out of the office. So, you know, he would have had this kind of journalistic observation of the biggest pop star at the time. Big house and a running joke Everybody can come and see Big 
we listened to a lot of black music at the time. I'm sure Virgin were just going, what the hell are they at? What's going on here? Creation Records beginning to take off about that time. And I think they just want us to be a white indie band. Yeah, yeah. But we don't want to be a white you indie band. You want to be band. a white soul band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then committee thinking began. I mean, to be fair to the committee, the money that all of this was costing was unthinkable. Would have been unthinkable five years before that. And even five years subsequent, there was all this money around. And nobody quite, to be honest, knew what to do with it. You had this mixture of business people and music fans like Ronnie Gurr, who really knew their music. And Simon Draper really knew his music. The reason he was there was that his cousin, Richard, uh, knew nothing about music, (laughs) but wanted to have a music business. Every step of this thing was costing crazy money. So we got to record 39 minutes, and the edges began coming off. It was very much like the anti clock comes down the stairs it was for me the point where my belief in what we were doing crumbled you know we know it's nearly over at that stage tensions yeah tensions i think carl really feels rightly so that his artistic intention feels he's been edited by the label he's there was a new record planned okay and guess what what guess who was going to produce it guess who was over to produce it dom was so dom was is in london to watch one of our last shows and by which time Don Was is big, big news, yeah. you know. Was not was a big news. Yeah. And he really wants to produce Michael, mm. isn't he? He really. And so there's a new record planned, and it's Don Was. But. The bot takes place on the night of July 1st, 1988. Intruders at the Palace at the Dominion Theatre is a benefit for the Institute of Contemporary Arts. It features David Bowie performing with La 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 Human Steps. The Wooden Tops, the Cronus Quartet and Micro Disney are also on the bill. Oh, God. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sufficient objectivity to know that there is a different way of doing things. And I really didn't have that objectivity myself. Made me much more of a difficult person to deal with. Made it much more difficult for me to get things done, to contribute to things, to be a useful family member, partner, whatever, you know. I had no objectivity. I continued to compartmentalise even within the limited purview that I permitted myself. Things were just kind of building up in a very negative manner. That is the day we split. That was the day. Okay. It was that moment. That's when we, we finish. That's a, a band in Nervous Breakdown filmed on TV. It's exactly that. I mean, I have enormous regrets about that. It was a completely unnecessary self-inflicted trauma what can I say you know it was but like I I said a minute ago I had allowed things to get on top of me to the point that I was not functioning with any kind of uh, honour really so then you call it a day. Yeah. And uh, that's well, that's the end then. And then I think a few days later, Carl brings me up and says, you know, I don't think this can carry on. And I said, yeah, okay. I really couldn't see the wood for the trees. And I couldn't see that wrecking relationships was not necessary. It was not a logical conclusion of the admittedly quite difficult 
situation we were in. Cahill picks himself up and sets to work forming the Fatima Mansions. Sean releases a solo album called High Lamas, and My92 uses that moniker for his new band. Both bands would release a string of critically acclaimed albums. Viva Dead Ponies and Hawaii are still regarded as two of the greatest records of the 1990s. I don't know what I thought I was doing for those first couple of years of the mentions especially, but kicking over the traces of what had gone before was a bit of a, an axiomatic <laughs> tentpole. I suppose what I would have said at the time was that I, I wanted things to either be more noisy or way more stripped down than, than Micro Disney. I think we got some way towards that. Wilderness. Wilderness years. Three, four years. You know, wilderness years. Mm. Absolutely. You know, not able to do it. So I'm, I start driving a van. Friends of the Earth, I think. I really begin to form a musical vision in my head. And so the real beginning is Santa Barbara, really. Beginning to understand how to arrange and produce. Then I meet Stereolab and dragged right back to Brian Wilson. And that's the beginning of Gideon Gay. well-arranged pop melodies and really who doesn't and if you also like intelligent articulate lyricism and again you would hope who doesn't then here they both are in one band my name's andrew muller i'm a journalist i used to work for melody maker now i don't they were never massively commercially successful but you know however many decades later people are still talking about them and people are no longer talking about any number of their they're more profitable contemporaries. I'm very happy to say that playing with Sean and Cahill actually kind of ruins it for the rest of your career because just the combination of music and lyrics, absolutely everything, was left done by, essentially. Very, very, very pleased about that. The gigs were probably the biggest memory because we had many gigs that were really, really intense. But sometimes I would literally feel that like I was rising off the stage. That was the great thing. That was just fantastic. You know, nothing would ever change that. All through my teens, I had pretensions to try and do something creative. And it was really only meeting Sean that gave me any indication of how you could practically go about it. Meeting Mick Lynch previous to that had given me the idea how you could make a splash while doing it. Except I have no pretension that I could touch Mick for the things that Mick could do. I would never have had the practicality to do that if I hadn't met Sean. The things that we learned together, despite having tried to kick over the traces of it for the period immediately after it ended, and that's the only way I understand how to make music, was the way that we learned about together and the way that he knew about first, you know. Me and Carl meet in a party in 1979, New Year's Eve. This kind of stumbling, fumbling kind of pair. And then, you know, it ends in 1989. 
But yeah, here we are in 1885 where this record all came together for that. Mm. Intentions and discussions and influences and shared experiences and you know, that kind of whole thing of growing up. That's exactly what it is. We were just kids and we were just growing up. Iron Fist in Velvet Glove was produced by Paul McDermott. My thanks to Cahill and Sean and all the other contributors and everyone who helped with this production. Now that was Iron Fist in Velvet Glove, the story of Micro Disney. And I'd like to dedicate this episode to the memory of Cahill Coughlin, who sadly passed away on the 18th of May. So go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast and you'll find the episode notes and further information on all 20 episodes. If you enjoyed this one, then please subscribe, like and share. The theme music, as always, is called Irish Rhapsody Redux and it's by Mark Healy. It's his reworking of a recording of the New Light Symphony Orchestra's version of Victor Herbert's Irish Rhapsody. Until season two, goodbye.